0: About three weeks ago, the Kickstarter we had running for our documentary, Dark Night of Our Soul, ended. It was 45 days of my soul leaving my body. I put so much pressure on myself to raise $90,000 as if I was holding the weight of healing the world's trauma on my shoulders. And if you've ever put together a project that has this big piece of you in it, you might know that feeling. The documentary was something that we had kept so close to us throughout the production process and now... Putting it out into the world was a really big moment. And I did the thing where I associated the money exchange from donors to my own value and my own worth. And the funny thing was, I knew I was doing that. And logically, I was like, okay, Jessica, there's no need to do that. You should not do that. But my ego was louder. And it had this vibe of, if this doesn't work, you kind of suck. It sounds so dramatic, but I was really internally dramatic about it. And when we hit that 45-day mark, we only raised $50,000, which means we didn't get anything at all because with Kickstarter, you have to raise all of the goal or you don't get a cent. I was actually so relieved. Not that we didn't hit our goal, but that it was over. At that point, I literally could not care at all that I had just spent several months fundraising for practically nothing. Now, side note, we did get a few angel, angel donors that are going to fund the entire thing. So, thank you, the universe provideth. But the point is, I was like, okay, this is definitely time for another Shadow Work submission because I am stressed, I was so stressed out. But after a bit of contemplation, I actually started researching stress for a new show. What I felt was actually more accurate was that I felt lost, not stress, even though there was stress, but it was more lost. I was feeling like my efforts and my team's efforts were this thing that would make it all work, right? On the surface, that sounds like it makes sense, but our sheer force of will would be the thing that helps us achieve this goal. And that pressure to achieve this big thing for us anyway, to me, it felt like I was just all on my own doing it. Even though I had the team, it was more like, I am not feeling supported. I have to do the things to get the result. All right. So that is basically what today's shadow work submission is about. It's about dislocation, this feeling of feeling separate from the flow of life. Now, if you don't know who I am, my name is Jessica DePotzi, and I'm a shadow work educator and a documentary producer. And if you're not looking at my face right now, you're in podcast land. So if you have the space for it, come on over to my YouTube portal where you can see this brand new moody shadowy studio. See that wallpaper has snakes on it. It's such a vibe. It was like a real process putting it up, but I did it and it's like giving me shadow work life. (laughs) Don't you think? Oh, also I got a haircut, but anyway, that's kind of not really the point of all this. Um, If you are enjoying the show, I think this is the time we're asked for a reading and review. That would be awesome. And if you're liking the YouTube version, go ahead and subscribe do all the things. Alrighty, back to the thing I know how to do, which is clearly not give calls to action to grow this channel. (laughs) So we're talking about the shadow of dislocation. Now the reactive or the outward manifestation of fear of dislocation is the state that I was in. I was enforcing this external rhythm or structure to force my way through this project. I was just pushing through and pushing through trying to organize all of this, which I actually very obviously intuitively knew wasn't going to turn out the way I'd hoped or expected, but I still tried to override my gut by organizing this in some kind of logical framework that should work out if I did it right. I was so regimented around how it's supposed to be done, the way the consultants told me to do it, and the courses and all the things, and I totally dismissed my knowing that the true way through would only be found through my heart in this mystical experience of moving into the synchronization of all that is. Like I have done this work long enough to know that there is a point where best practices and logic for me anyway are just getting in my way. My intuition is really the thing that's going to help me go with the flow of what wants to come through. Now the repressive or the inward manifestation of dislocation is kind of similar but it has a different flair to it. It's this feeling of being out of alignment with one's universal destiny. There's no sense or at least a lack of sense of the spiritual dimension. And we feel this byproduct of being lost in suffering. So without this direct experience of connection to spirit and God, life can seem like it has no purpose. And you can feel like you're just flopping around and floundering. There are so many coaches and religious leaders and spiritual leaders out there that exist almost solely to help people find their purpose in life because of the shadow of dislocation. and the listless, listless, the listless, list, 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 feeling <laughs> the lostness it can have us feeling. So where the reactive manifestation of dislocation creates structure and uh, these regiments to make something that they want to happen through sheer force of will, You can feel like you're trudging through molasses or through mud. The repressive manifestation of dislocation is aware that they're lost, but they have no idea how to get where they need to be or what that looks like. The common thread is that both manifestations have us living out of alignment with the universal flow of, of life and nature. Now, this is interesting. I actually looked up the definition of nature in the dictionary or whatever online, and it's, Defined as this the phenomena of the physical world collectively, which includes plants, animals, the landscape, the cosmos really like any natural feature or worldly feature as opposed to humans or human creations. So we've literally defined humans as being separate from nature. Now, if you're drawn to shadow work, you probably are thinking that is so ridiculous and that sucks. And you might even be dreaming of returning to this primal awareness where we didn't live with a separation from life because it feels like we're going in this bad direction, this disconnection from nature. But it seems to me now that the development, this rapid development of our brains in our society are actually really vital bridge to an even greater leap in awareness that we can't really understand right now. A few months ago, I was blessed with an invite to Blue of Earth's live podcast gathering with Richard Rudd and Zach Bush at B and Azria's beautiful home in Malibu. And it was a portal. It was a portal. <laughs> it was so nice. I'm going to link to that episode, her episode in the description. Definitely give it a watch. They open up a beautiful conversation around the perfectness of this time. And also how we can evolve with it and contribute to the evolution. So it was all, if I could reduce it down to a sentence, about creating action out of trust. Because the actions that come out of trust have a very different result than those that come out of fear. you you use my own personal example here. I've taken my journal out so many times during moments of fear, and it usually starts with, what do I want? Just to come very shortly with this, understanding that I have no idea what I want in those instances. And this is a really interesting moment because it's an awareness that there's dissonance. There's a lack of harmony or conflict somewhere in our lives, but it's pre verbal. Like we don't know what it is yet. We can't define it. There is room for fear, but it's not usually the right time to create a plan. That's the time to know that you're in chaos and that awareness allows you to witness your own helplessness with full and honest awareness. And then the transformation is allowed to proceed. This feeling of not knowing where you're supposed to be, but having no idea where you're supposed to go is that first stage of transformation. And we can't articulate what's going on for us. And we, it's like we lose the plot and feel this kind of witness of our own experience as if someone else is living our life. Not in that cool Zen kind of way as the witness, but more in the way that you talk to yourself as if you're somebody else, like girl, get yourself together. That is a really interesting moment when you start to witness yourself and the kind of chaos and the dissonance that you're existing in. So dislocation, it allows us to experience being out of universal flow that's its purpose. Dislocation can feel like this kind of chaos and what's cool about that is chaos is a part of the fabric of existence. In our documentary we have this segment at the very beginning where we talk about the bioevolutionary purpose of trauma where we take you on a journey from the teeny tiny like the infinitesimal all the way to the cosmos explaining how trauma or in this context chaos serves an evolutionary purpose. This phase of dislocation if we were to unanthropomorphize it, if that's a word, that happens when any organism in nature transforms. This feeling of chaos is a really important part of life. Chaos is the dark feminine, is Kali. She goes by lots of different names. It's everything and nothing all at the same time. And it only becomes something when chaos is met with the right kind of order that can extract potential out of it. But at some point, too much order becomes stale and i and like tyrannical so in order to write itself and c- to continue to evolve chaos needs to be injected again so she does so to evolve we're going back and forth between chaos and order so that we can transform it brings a kind of sacredness to this feeling of not knowing what the f is going on it's this real chicken or the egg situation out of Chaos brings order and out of order brings chaos and so on and so on until infinity. And to me, the contemplation of this screams the question or maybe answers the question, why do bad things happen to good people? We've been yelling that at the skies for I'd imagine forever. Well, maybe it's because we don't know what bad is. And we don't know what side of history we're on. And we've been asked to transform. We've been asking to transform, we've been praying to transform, helping to transform. And because we're part of this fast ordering system, we don't get to play by own our own rules. So chaos is like, here you go, girl, here you go. <laughs> In my moment of what is even going on here after the fundraiser was over, I I got this intuitive pang to reach out to my friend Dr. Danielle for a book recommendation because I needed a reset. And so she sent me Dancing in the Flames by Marion Woodman. And I didn't get past two pages of this book without feeling like, wow, this is a living transmission. This book is so good. So I'm going to link to it in the references or in the description show notes if you want to get it for yourself, it's very good. So once I finally got past two pages, one of the first things that I found so fascinating was the work of Ken Wilber who defined, or who outlined rather, three stages of matriarchal mythology, which could also be seen as how we created a culture of dislocation from nature and connectivity throughout time. And I think this is important to know because if we can bring these cultural shadows to light, we can really understand more of why we are the way we are. And for me at least, that brings me a real sense of contentment, knowing that there have been many people just like me and you many, many moons ago who are asking themselves the same questions, feeling the same kind of lostness for different reasons, maybe, but that it's all part of it. So I'm going to take you through these three stages because they're pretty cool. The first stage is called the Typhoon, where this is like the earliest versions of who we are, the Neanderthal and the Cro-Magnon types, whose consciousness were dominated by this primal instinct to survive. And he wrote that the Great Mother was probably not much more than an impact or an expression of like simple biological dependence. Mother Earth fed them and provided them with the nourishment and shelter they needed to survive or die. So it was just part of them. Think of the consciousness of a deer, what we can imagine at least as the consciousness of a deer. She's munching away, eating the tall grass, using the tall grass to hide. Death is kind of just a thing that happens. Life and death, pleasure and pain were a seamless reality, and so we were part of that. We didn't see the Great Mother as separate, but as a symbolic extension of who we were without getting so heady about it. I mean, I don't know if they had the capacity to, but it was just an extension of, of their reality. Now, during the second stage of evolution, the sense of self became more structured, more articulate, and we became more aware of this illusion that we're separate from the Great Mother. This is where Maya, the Maya, comes into play. As we slowly separated from her and we saw her as one thing and ourselves as more sovereign, life and death became polarized, Okay, because we started to become more aware of this inevitability of our mortality. Of what it would mean to not exist and we wanted to exist so we started to become afraid of our death and hope and wish that this ambiguous life giver this ambiguous death giver life taker would give us more life and prolong death now the third stage is where it gets really interesting the third stage brought on this next greater consciousness or next version of it which began to personify the great mother as these deities to worship ritualistically so we we see isis and sophia and kali we've are giving names and we're embodying these energies and what's important about this phase is that we really began to solidify the sense that we are separate from the divine now we didn't lose track of our oneness altogether right it's just like today some worshiped the great mother and her 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 deities by trying to appease them with offerings or sacrifices outside of themselves while others entered into a process of self-transformation knowing that the great mother is bringing forth her destruction to allow for that next evolution of self nonetheless the matriarchal myth or the matriarch- matriarchal myth <laughs> lived on very strongly until the iron age okay so this is like the eclipse of the goddess so interesting the iron age is where i got crazy right <laughs> so for all of you who did not keep that bit of info locked away this is the period in human history had to look this up where the there was a widespread widespread use of iron um Iron was invented, and before that, humans were using bronze, which was harder to come by. It was expensive, not as durable. So average people started to use this more efficient lifestyle enabling technology. So that meant better farming, which meant bigger populations, which meant more complex social structures. And and then as we began to manipulate and exert our will over the earth and manipulate and like fire, create fire and subdue fire and create waterways, we realized also we couldn't control the sun or the seasons and sun worship became a thing. And so humanity moved from this polytheistic worship to monotheistic worship. The sun assumed supremacy. So nature, she could be manipulated while he, the sun God, he reigned supreme. And this patriarchal paradigm has really dominated the West up until today. Now I'm not talking about men versus women here. This is about the human experience that we've all played into in past lives if you subscribe to that. And our, and we play into the cultural experience every day whether we're conscious of it or not. One way in the West that we're playing into it is the hero myth actually. So you've probably heard of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey The hero's journey is a narrative pattern that's found in many myths stories movies but it also shows up in our lives you know it it involves a protagonist who goes on an adventure faces various challenges and trials and undergoes personal transformation and returns home with newfound wisdom and growth and ultimately brings positive change to their world or themselves. Now, on the surface, that's like one hundred percent good to go. But the, there is a shadow of the, of the hero's journey. There's shadows everywhere. <laughs> the shadow of the hero is that of the hero's journey is that the hero has to battle and triumph over the great mother or one of her guises, the, the dragons, the serpents the monsters which is this egoic expression of the consciousness of this time so remember the great mother while she brings life she also brings destruction and so the hero's job more or less is to defeat that destruction to defeat that chaos and bring order and make sense of of their linear desires so instead of integrating the mother into this myth the hero dissociates from her and sees her as something that needs to be controlled now the coincidences of this consciousness is that we are all living our own form of our hero's journey. This is this narrative structure that we've been born into. Uh, We've been born to believe is this way of life. And in many ways, we can't help but experience our lives as a story. We feel as if we're at the heart of this steadily unfolding plot, one that has good guys and bad guys and quests for happiness and prizes. I think it was a neurologist, neuroscientist, Chris Firth, who called this the inevitable or (laughs) the invisible actor at the center of the world. And because we're the children of generations and generations of people living their own hero's journeys in this format, remarkable or not, we come to see chaos as something to be avoided. We've forgotten the purpose of chaos as a container, or at least the beginning stages of transformation. So when we say down with the patriarchy, I just really want to look at what that also really means other than challenging gender roles and discrimination, which clearly, clearly so for that. Down with the patriarchal way of life means at its essence that we can't continue to pride ourselves on the power of our minds. We can't value being reasonable and logical and linear above all else. And that plays out in all genders. So really though like clearly that isn't really working for us anyway since we're in this mix of anything but what seems reasonable right (laughs) we're swimming in a collective neuroses destroying our natural resources and this really desperate attempt to avoid death or prolong life is creating all kinds of weird diseases and cancers and before i get all crazy on all the issues we're facing and i can't get a little crazy about it i have to remind myself that this is all part of it That is the tricky part of this, for me at least. Like, What is all this pointless bullshit? (laughs) How is this part of the divine plan? Well, it seems to me now that this is humanity's disorientation era, which is that thing that lets us know, oh, we need to get reoriented and more of what we're doing isn't working and our brains have mutated or grown way past our wisdom centers. And because that's probably true, I don't know what the next evolution of our of humans will be. I don't know what it's gonna look like. You know, Richard Rudd does say that we have, we're going to have a highly dominant solar plexus that'll replace our minds more or less. And he explains that very beautifully in the 55th Gene Key or in the interview with Zach Bush on Blue's podcast. But what we do believe we know now is the next best thing to do. We don't know where it's taking us, but the next step is to raise our level of frequency, to raise our vibration. And we can do that in two ways. We can shift our awareness and then that affects your actions, or you can shift your actions, which then serves as a catalyst in shifting your awareness. Now, for me, I prefer the latter because I have so much Capricorn in my design. I'm such a doer. And it's really easy for me to just do stuff without a shift in awareness. So for me, my strategy is to shift my awareness before I do. That might be different for you. You might tend to be more of a contemplator and shifting behavior is really the pattern disrupt that you need. Either way, really, we do them in tandem, depending on the context. Sometimes it's impossible to just that intentional about everything that you do, but it is nice to know some frameworks. Now, I want to really talk about raising your vibration because this is the antidote that to the shadow of dislocation. And I also want to talk about synchronicities because they're a sign that we're on path. One of the best things that I do on the show, I think, is defining these words that we hear often that might have a lot more power if we can really dig deep into their meaning. And raising your vibration is definitely one of those things. That deserves more power because it is it is the thing. So raising your vibration, to my knowledge, is referring to our energy vibrating at a certain frequency that kind of, af- well, in, for raising it, it improves our physical health, emotional well-being, and the experiences that we attract into our lives. Uh, your vibration can attract all kinds of also negative things. But all right. I think that raising your vibration has generally become this misnomer because of the word raising. I think it can be mistaken for just feeling good, like emotionally pleasant. If I'm feeling good, I'm vibing high. Now, this is from my theater, a theoretical work, so just roll with me on this. I believe it gets disor- dis- disordered, or what's the word I'm looking for? Distorted because feeling lonely or scared or mad doesn't seem like you're raising up any kind of scale. A lot of you watching this are probably familiar with Hawking's Scale of Consciousness, where we have these lower states of shame and apathy and guilt. And at the top, we have peace, joy, and enlightenment. And I'm a huge fan of his work. And also, one of the issues I see with it, whether he meant to do this or not, is when you give a number to what he calls these predominant emotional states, it really fires up that logical, practical, masculine side of us that wants to know what is going on. Tell me what's graspable. Tell me what's definable. We love that stuff. Tell me where I rank. Tell me my number of consciousness. (laughs) But the flow of emotions can be torrent, right? The consciousness, I think is more of this long, I think your vibration is more of this longer climate type of thing where emotions, they change by the hour, by the minute. And a lot of the time you can hold a lot of these emotions at the same time. You can hold sadness and joy at the same time. Like sitting with the passing of a loved one that's lived a really good long life. That's a great example of holding these two emotions at the same time. And what I'm getting at is when you raise your vibration, what you're doing is really deepening into your experience with presence. And that can feel sometimes, a lot of the time, like fear or grief or anger So we really need to stop looking at raising your vibration and personal growth in general as a climb up a ladder into heaven. And anytime you fall into those lower states, it being a kind of regression, because a lot of the time, a descent into the underworld is where we collect these fragmented pieces of ourselves that we're lost there. To me, to be truly high vibe means to honor whatever comes up with you with grace and joy and peace. This ugly cry, the ugly cry is a powerful elixir. Be here for that. (laughs) And I do believe that he's, Hawkins was brilliant. I do believe that he refers to a lot of this in his book. I know he does actually, but I think the trouble comes with when we just look at the graph, I think it can be misunderstood in a way that can be potentially dangerous to our own development. Now, synchronicity is a word coined by, by Carl Jung. And this is relevant here because Synchronicities are signs that we're raising our vibration and we're deepening into that experience with presence. And he defined it as an a-causal connecting principle. A-causal meaning not arising from a cause, uh, there's no obvious cause of it and connecting meaning this togetherness. So it's a meaningful coincidence of events where something other than the probability of chance is involved. Young believed though, like even the word coincidence, like most occurrences that somebody might wave off as a coincidence, aren't really due to chance. And I mean, yeah, of course, right? <laughs> he believed that their, like synchronicities. These things are directly related to you, the in- individual and serve to provide this powerful insight, direction and guidance. And these, si- these signs can aid in awakening you to your full potential and to serve as this guide for getting in touch with your inner self. It's that, I mean, you've experienced it. It's that serendipitous moment where you experience something on the outside that mirrors what's happening on the inside for you. And these synchronicities seem like these beautiful conversations with you and the universe as symbols and numbers, conversations, spontaneous encounters, dreams. Those are good ones. And this is important because if you're anything like me, You have many parts to you, I mean, we all do, but to me, I have two very loud parts of myself that are often wrestling with each other. The one that values love and God above all else. That part of me that earnestly honors the vibration of oneness and the trust that God is all around me. I am protected, I am supported, and the energy of the universe is me. And that, yeah. It's just, it's all good to go. And then I have this other part of me that really values my own force of will, my own like stuff, (laughs) that feeling of disconnectedness, dislocation, I'm off path, I'm on my own to figure it all out. I have to be very practical and logical, what makes sense. And that part of me forgets that I'm a divine being and when this part of me takes dominion over my soul, I just simply don't experience synchronicities. My friend John Wolf brought this up to me the other day and I was like, oh my God, I didn't notice that. He's like, when I'm in flow and things are aligned, I see synchronicities all over the place. I'm like, Yeah, it's so interesting. What I do experience when I'm in that state is causal happenings based on things that I've done, right? I can see results of things that I've done and that's about it. So it's really interesting when Jung uses that word a causal it's something happening in the universe that's separate from causality and when we think about it causality is like kind of like the religion of the modern world and scientific materialism which everything is a material cause and effect. You do this thing, something happens. You do this thing, something else happens. And when Jung is saying is synchronicity is a-causal, you are not making the number 420 show up on your microwave just in time for you to look at it. You're not making a dragonfly that represents your mother float by exactly at that time when you're thinking about her. It's a separate happening. It's not happening within the material causal sphere. God, I hope this makes sense. Sometimes I talk about stuff and I'm like, okay, I think that made sense. Now, recognizing synchronicity can be trained and improved on by raising your vibration and having this heightened awareness and an ability for wisdom forward meaning making. So in saying all that, I'm going to link to the interview I did with John Ruvaki in the description. He is the meaning making master. And I highly, highly, highly recommend watching his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series on YouTube. But just a warning, it is like, it might melt your brain but it's worth it. So beyond the synchronicities that just happen, synchronicities can also be intentionally facilitated with divination tools like the I Ching, which you've been, which if you've been following this show, you know I do each of these solo shows, mostly on the gene keys. This is gene key number two, by the way. The gene keys are the synthesis of the I Ching, astrology, many other things, but I would say mostly it's, foundation is built on the I Ching. And here's a fun fact, Carl Jung ranked the I Ching, this book, as one of the 10 pillars of bridging the spirit. Jung was absolutely a mystic. He just had to play science guy, I think, at his time so that he could translate a lot of these wisdom teachings in a time where witchiness was like not good to go. So, yeah. One of the ways you can play with the energies of synchronicities is to, and I didn't imagine he did this too, is to toss coins associated with a question. And that the placement of those coins will give you a message in the I Ching based on your particular psychic state in space and time. So I'm going to link to a video in the description that explains how to do that. And if the I Ching is just a little bit too cryptic for you, I get it. I actually do this with the gene keys instead. So you can absolutely do it with the gene keys as well. All of these practices, when you're settled into your solar plexus and your heart space, helps you live more in harmony. And the electromagnetic frequency of your aura just increases. So Richard Rudd so beautifully says, the more you can let go into the feminine yielding quality of this frequency of the gift of orientation, the more universal power floods through you. Your your timing becomes so fine tuned, so much so that If you find yourself out of harmony, your body immediately conveys that to your brain and we can make sense of it. And I think that's why we can become so sensitive in this modern world as we deepen into our spirits. I had this conversation with a good friend the other day about ayahuasca. He was honestly, curiously asking me if ayahuasca heals, then why are so many people like out of sorts, for lack of a better word, after it? Sometimes even more so than before they did it. And I would say to that, ceremonial psychedelics can show us this disorientation we've been habitually living in and realign us to the hidden agenda of life, which is to bring all beings into awareness of their unity. And when we deeply surrender into God's process, it can be clearly empowering and amazing, but also it can be really hard because we have to... Resist avoiding our truths that can mean like we have to let parts of ourselves that we've been so used to die and fall off so more parts can come in, more light can come in. The gift of orientation is so beautiful. You know, over time, through our own personal harmony, which is understanding this flow of chaos and order and seeing how we fit into that and honoring it, we naturally bring others into their own personal harmony. And as Rudd so gracefully says, this is our final destiny as a species to realize our state of oneness and unity with all that is. Whew. So that is the shadow of dislocation and the gift of orientation. I love this one. I, My favorite shadow work submissions are when they just have so much history in them and i really learned something i mean i learned something from all of these but this one really felt like a prescription to the hot mess that i was after this (laughs) after this fundraiser so i hope it brings you some peace thank you so much for growing with me for having fun with me laughing with me um and going on this shadow work journey together I would love to meet you on Instagram in the very least. I'm in Austin. So if you're in Austin, hit me up. Uh, My Instagram is JessicaDePotsie underscore. That's D-E-P-A-T-I-E. And uh, she's going pro now, like new studio. I know I just had a new studio, but this is actually its own room and not my living room. So I also have recorded episodes ready to go, if you can believe it. This is actually going pro after four years of just doing it whenever I want. Thanks for hanging in there. Love you guys. I'm wishing you the best day, best week, best month, best life moving forward. And we'll talk again soon.